Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the meltdown of the official launch of Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign, which he chose to do on Twitter in conversation with Elon Musk, which crashed and burned due to technical glitches, with most of the callers fawning over Musk instead of boosting DeSantis, as their infantile banter focused on the war against wokeness while the platform was flooded with crypto scams. Joining us is David Roth, who has written about sports, politics and culture in Deadspin, The New Republic, SB Nation, The New York Daily News and other publications. He's the founder of Defector Media, where his latest articles at Defector.com include The Man Who Invented Himself and Burning Down the House, which explains how Musk wants to be seen as brilliant and heterodox and fearless, but has the opinions and tastes and politics of a very rich middle-aged man who isn't especially curious or literate. He sees himself, or anyway sells himself, as a visionary and a pioneer, but has revealed himself time after time to be a classically cretinous capitalist. Then we'll discuss a speech yesterday by Chief Justice Roberts in which he revealed how totally out of touch he is with reality in dismissing calls for ethical reform as if there was nothing wrong with Justice Thomas's behaviour. Joining us is Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation who was previously a reporter for the New York Times where he covered labour and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He is the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And we will discuss his article at The Guardian, Clarence Thomas Should Resign from the Supreme Court for the Good of the Court. Then finally we will look into a call for the U.S. to deal with the one-state reality of Israel following Monday's address by the Palestinian President to the UN General Assembly on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, or catastrophe, as the Palestinians call it. Joining us is Shibli Talhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, the Director of the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has advised every U.S. administration from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama, serving as advisor to the U.S. mission to the United Nations as well as on the Iraq Study Group and as a senior advisor to the U.S. Department of State. He's the author of a number of books, including The Stakes, America in the Middle East, and The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion, and and The Reshaping of the Middle East. And he's the co-author of a new book just out, The One-State Reality, what is Israel-Palestine, and the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, Israel's One-State Reality. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now are David Roth, who has written about sports, politics and culture in Deadspin, The New Republic, SB Nation, New York Magazine, New York Daily News and other publications. He's the co-founder of Defector Media, where his latest articles at Defector.com include The Man Who Invented Himself and Burning Down the House. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Roth. Hi, Ian. How are you? Well, I'm I'm well, but uh, what do you think about the the, the launch of... Ron DeSantis' presidential run, uh, which took place last night on Twitter uh, with Elon Musk 
basically in conversation with him, and it was obviously uh, fell pretty flat. Yeah. In fact, curiously enough, you know, not that people could really call in uh, because it kept crashing, but those that showed up and those that were featured in interviews, etc., were mostly praising the host, Elon Musk, with fawning over him. Uh, so it really didn't seem to do much good for uh, Ron DeSantis. What was your take on it? It went about as well as I hoped it would go for Ron DeSantis. If I'm being honest, I should get that uh, bit of bias out of the way to begin with. Uh, it was a disaster in the ways that I expected it to be a disaster, and then also in the ways that you highlighted, um, which are kind of, it's a rougher sort of chuckle. It's a little bit um, like satire that's kind of too funny or too uh, on point to actually laugh at. The idea that this could fail multiple times that they would have a fatuous conversation that sounded bad where it's basically DeSantis saying different talking points about how he's going to make different uh, brands and products 25% less woke as your president or whatever and then David Sachs and Elon Musk talking about Bitcoin and kind of uh, chuckling under their breaths if you are somebody that can listen to that and see in it the future of uh, our politics then you are um, probably right in some dark ways, but not in any ways that I would imagine uh, people would look forward to as a future of our discourse. I think also it it, it points to the, the broader Musk Twitter problem, which is that it doesn't work anymore. There was a lot of back padding about how many people managed to make it in there. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez playing a video game on Twitch successfully had 400,000 people watching it, the most they were ever able to get in that Twitter spaces at once was about a hundred thousand. It was in the fifties for most of it. It's just not a very good technology since Musk took over. And he's not really uh, paying any attention to it, is no. he? I mean, he's firing all the engineers. So, I mean, first of all, he bought the platform. He spent forty-four billion dollars to essentially own the libs. Then he stripped the company of its of its oversight and most of its engineers. And now, has it really become a platform for digital scams like uh, crypto? It has that that feeling to it. I, I can't tell to what extent any of it is intentional at this point. I mean, obviously, Musk's decision to fire 90% of the employees, that's not something that you do um, on accident. I think, he, you know, to the extent that you can see a strategy there, it's that he wanted to cut costs because he spent too much money buying a product that's not ever been especially profitable. But the rest of it, I think you do see a lot of bots and scams, and a lot of those do have to do with cryptocurrency. There's a lot, but you know, it's kind of what happens to any online space once it stops working. You know, that there's a great deal of scammy sludge that's always sort of pushing at the outer walls of any website, you know, that any comment section could, and you know, in political terms, like this generally means that it turns fascist or racist, which you also see a lot more of that sort of thing on Twitter now. But basically, a, a website that works effectively, that gives users an experience that users might actually want to have, manages to mitigate that or to limit it so that you don't see it unless it's something that you want to see. I mean, if you go on Twitter and you want bad financial advice having to do with NFTs, you can definitely find it. The issue is that if you don't want that experience, it's increasingly hard to avoid it because the site's broader controls just don't work anymore. So then what is, is there a possibility that something can replace it? Because obviously it became a popular site for all kinds of people, and particularly for politicians, and Donald Trump clearly made good use of it. So, I mean, why are we stuck with this infantile troller and his uh, cohorts uh, now trying to meddle in politics? Thank God. They've tipped their hand about how stupid they are. Yeah. And, I mean, this is uh, the thing. It's almost a saving grace that these guys and, you know, Musk, David Sachs, that sort of tier of Silicon Valley guys. And then Peter Thiel, who has a great deal more money, uh, you know, on hand and has spent more of it on politics. Thank goodness they have pretty terrible taste in politicians. I mean, their politics are easy enough to spot and they're bad. I mean, it's just a real ugly, uh, you know, it. what was once libertarian, I think, is now just pretty frankly reactionary in its politics. You know, one could argue about how long a trip that actually is. But the candidates that they endorse tend to be on the DeSantis or Blake Masters sort of side of things. They want 
guys that talk about the things that they're interested in. And uh, thankfully, most people are not interested in those things. Most people, I would argue, don't even know what any of this is about. I think that, you know, if you're steeped in conservative media, the stuff that Musk posts about and he's constantly fulminating about the woke mind virus and all of these, you know, speaking in, in these very dire kind of comic book villain terms. And yet I don't think that the average person off the street would understand what any of that means. And the candidates that are pandering to, in this case, you know, to people with a great deal of money and with this, as you said, decrepit, but still very influential platform. If you have to say the things that those people want back to them, I think just naturally that's going to be alienating to everyone else because it's going to be very difficult to decode. If what you want from a politician, even from a conservative politician, is just somebody who'll cut your taxes, you might wonder why they're just talking about Bud Light endlessly. You know, and I think that uh, I don't know. I don't think that DeSantis is a nimble enough politician to square that circle. I think Trump is kind of exempt from it because he's his own thing. But I do know that the more Twitter feels like that, uh, the less I want to be there. And I think that that is a decently widely shared opinion. Um, the issue is just, you know, widespread adoption. I, Blue Sky is a new uh, site that's in beta that a lot of people I, I, I'm on it. And I'll say the vibes are better and it has a lot of media people on it and some politicians on it. But, you know, what Twitter was in terms of how many people were on there and that capacity to sort of talk to each other. It feels like a miracle that it worked as well as it did for as long as it did. And if there's not as many people or as many people from the cohorts that are well represented on Twitter, then I don't know that any other site could replicate it. The good news is that, like, it was always kind of bad and now it's worse and it might be that we'd all be better off without it. So in terms of both Trump and DeSantis, and clearly DeSantis has, didn't help himself last night with the launch of his campaign to challenge Trump. And he's, he was up to 34 points behind. He's now, I think, about 20 points behind yeah. Trump. And I imagine that gap may have widened as a result of the Twitter meltdown last night. But I find it interesting that you know, Trump is a genuine fascist. He really admires Mussolini and Putin and people like that and really emulates them. And either, you know, he wants to be a kind of both a mob boss and a, and a kind of authoritarian leader. So I see Trump as a genuine authoritarian who emulates dictators. But DeSantis seems to me more cynical in choosing this authoritarian path to power, where he's trying to go further to the right than anybody else. So what kind of a fascist is that? It's a good question, man. <laughs> Up against I mean, a genuine one. <laughs> it's not the one that you, it's not a question that you necessarily want to have to turn over uh, when you're talking current events on the radio. But it's interesting because I think that DeSantis is, I think, authentically an authoritarian, but there's an almost a kind of a meta element to it. Because if and I think you're correct about this, that Trump seems stylistically, consciously or unconsciously to emulate what you think of as like your your big time fascist aesthetics, that he has sort of even like Mussolini style gestures and facial expressions that he makes. DeSantis imitates Trump. And so that's the sort of the complicating factor there that I, there's a sense. And I think this is true of, you know, all authoritarian politicians, that that is, you know, some people arrive at that set of policy positions for one reason or another, but fundamentally there's there's a vacuum at the heart of it, that there's where there should be values or there should be some sort of ethical grounding, there is nothing, and therefore you can slide just as far as gravity will take you. DeSantis ran for office, he won governor in 2016, I think it was 2016, by uh, basically talking about how much he loved Trump. That's what got him out of that primary. It's what got him through the, you know, what was a jarringly close, this is now forgotten, general election in his first term. He won by, you know, tens of thousands of votes. That he doesn't, like, have anything to stand on in terms of, you know, what does he do that's different than Trump? That his argument, and I think Florida, he would point to this as success of it, is that he is doing the things that Trump talked about doing, where Trump talked about how he was going to bully and hurt all the characters that his followers didn't like, all the different types of minority populations and all the various different enemies that cable news props up, that DeSantis has actually done it, that he's 
you know, passed a whole bunch of laws that make it very difficult to be trans or to be gay or to be a child who wants to read a book in a school library in the state of Florida. And I think that that even more so than Trump being elected president is sort of a case of the dog catching the car that I think that those are all very unpopular and I would say fundamentally un-American things. I think that it's one thing to talk about doing it on TV and to imagine how nice it would be to, you know, own the libs. But to see what DeSantis is doing and to see sort of how charmless and joyless a character he is in doing it, in some ways, I mean, it's a reminder of what this was all actually about, that, you know, that Trump's rallies have this sort of party vibe and people are all clearly, you know, happy to be there and happy to see this guy that they idolize. I don't think the ideas are as important as that feeling and that character. And DeSantis seems uh, much more to be the idea guy in this race. And not only do I not think that's going to help him in a primary, you know, it's my inexpert opinion. Uh, it is my more expert opinion that those ideas are poisonous and that tying himself to them too closely just doesn't feel like a winning move to me. And he doesn't have any skills as a retail politician. He really fact, doesn't, boy. Wow. He doesn't like people. Did you see you some know. of the footage of him in Iowa trying to banter with people in a diner? Oh, it's embarrassing. It was <laughs> like it wouldn't have been any different if you had like a soundboard and you were just mushing like, hey, hi, wow, that's great at random. Like he just really couldn't make eye contact with people. It's kind right. of a, a wonder uh, to stand out as a freak in the field of American reactionary politicians, because we have some weird ones right now. But right. DeSantis is really just a, a malfunctioning cyborg of a guy. So just in the last minute then, David, we have minority rule in this country, and the Republicans are perfecting it through electoral suppression and, and other methods, and they've got built-in advantages for the Electoral College and the, the small rural states versus the big populated urban centers in the blue states. So when you look at how unpopular the abortion decision is, how the lack of doing anything about recurrent massacres, particularly of young school children, really have the American people demanding something get done. All the important stuff is not being addressed. In fact, it's being uh, even exacerbated and made worse, these conditions. Meanwhile, you've got all of these sort of phony antics of culture wars, which is essentially what DeSantis is running on, getting up all the attention. So either the country or enough of the country is completely blind to what's important or somehow the, the focus is being deliberately shifted. So why is it that we can't deal with real problems? And you and I are talking about this phony, flawed guy with this ludicrous ambition uh, taking up our oxygen? I mean, it's a very difficult thing to sort of look square in the face like that. I think it's a good question. I mean, I think that to a certain extent, and I've been especially disheartened by this, uh, you know, in the last year, and I imagine we've got more of it, that the other key to effective minority rule is the Supreme Court, which is effectively pulling up the right of the government, the elected arms of the government, to make laws that might change that status quo. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we're stuck with the, you know, moment that we're stuck with. But if you see, you know, there's a, a ruling earlier this week that uh, basically um, is attempting to sort of poke a hole in the EPA's ability to regulate clean air and water, that these are longstanding conservative goals, I mean, reactionary goals, in American politics that have no constituency, that like even in a country where we are as distractible and our politics is as fatuous as this is, that even then you couldn't win an election saying, I'm going to make your water poisonous to drink and I'm going to do it to save five corporations some money, a rounding error on their record profits. You couldn't convince people that that was a good idea and you wouldn't try. Most politicians wouldn't even find a way to euphemize that. And yet those goals can be advanced now through this sort of unelected branch of government. It really is hard not to despair. I mean, because I think that it's heartening to see how people have noticed because it can sometimes feel like, you know, politics happens to us like weather. You know, I mean, it's just sort of a thing that you have to deal with. People 
don't want to live under conservative Republican policies that like that is a majority position basically across the United States. And yet that has to, you know, you would think that in a democracy that would mean something. I think that, like, as you said, if you're suppressing the vote, if the Senate and the Electoral College are pulling things out of whack such that you're giving advantage to more reactionary, sparsely populated states, where you wind up then at that point is uh, trying to, I guess, think bigger or think of ways outside of these institutions that you could deliver the sort of necessary shock uh, that the system needs because the institutions, you know, either function not terribly well or very slowly, which I would say, you know, the House and the Senate and the executive branch, uh, regardless of who's there, functions like that, or they function actively in opposition to popular goals, which I think is where the courts are right now. And, you know, you grow up being taught what these institutions are for and what they mean. And I, you know, I certainly did. Everybody in America does. And those basic civics lessons kind of feel almost like taunts at this point, because that's not what those institutions are being used for. They're still powerful. They just need to be sort of put to the actual use that they were intended to be, you know, used for. And that uh, that feels like a tall order now. I should end on a more optimistic note. Uh, do you want to like talk about the Mets or something? <laughs> well, I've run out of time, but I, I certainly would prefer to talk about it if we weren't forced to talk about what's threatening American democracy and the rise of American fascism. Yeah. And I thank you, David. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me back. And again, I've been speaking with David Roth, who's written about sports, politics, and culture in Deadspin, The New Republic, SB Nation, New York Magazine, New York, and the New York Daily News and other publications. He's the co-founder of Defector Media, where his latest articles at Defector.com include The Man Who Invented Himself and Burning Down the House. We're going to take a restation break. We're back discussing a speech yesterday by Chief Justice Roberts in which he revealed how totally out of touch he is with reality in dismissing calls for ethical reform as if there was nothing wrong with Justice Thomas's behavior. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, who was previously a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also serves as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Guardian, Clarence Thomas Should Resign from the Supreme Court for the good of the court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Greenhouse. Always nice to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And Chief Justice Roberts made a rare public speech yesterday. And obviously there's a lot of anticipation to find out what this... Well, we rarely find out what these people think. In uh, You get their opinions, but some of them are hard to comprehend and you wonder what planet they're on a lot of the time. So when they make public speeches, it's always interesting to try and figure out, you know, where they're coming from. But he was asked, for example, what was the the most difficult decision he had to make. And he said the most difficult decision he had to make was after the Dobbs decision banning abortion, he had to decide whether or not to put security barriers around the Supreme Court. It wasn't the decision itself that's caused such chaos and agony in this country and fury it was putting up the barriers. I mean, so again, you're left to wonder what planet these people are on. Yes. So, you know, I, you know, I'm raised a very conservative guy. I care about things like ethical standards and avoiding conflicts of interest. And, you know, I believe that members of the Supreme Court should, you know, follow the highest ethical standards. And I, you know, 
And yes, I normally write about labor matters, but I'm, I actually went to law school once upon a time and followed legal matters fairly closely. And it, to me, it's just been preposterous at how poorly Justice uh, Thomas has behaved. I was taking these luxury trips from a right-wing, politi- billionaire right-wing political activist who funds all these uh, conservative organizations, foundations, groups that are constantly bringing, filing various briefs to the Supreme Court. And that Thomas, I think it's scandalous that Thomas takes these luxury trips worth, you know, gazillions of dollars and then fails to disclose them, which I think is illegal. And, and you know, you know, you read, you know, the ethical rules of the Supreme Courts and for federal judges in general, it says you are supposed to avoid uh, appearances of impropriety. You're supposed to avoid not just conflicts of interest, but appearances of conflicts of interest. And and Thomas is just like swimming, drowning in a cesspool of improper activities, you know, taking these luxury trips. Uh, this billionaire right-wing activist, Harlan Crow paid more than $100,000 in tuition fees for a grandnephew of Clarence Thomas that Thomas is raising. You know, again, um, you know, you know, Leonard Leo, the head of uh, the Federalist Society, who really probably has done more than anyone else behind the scenes to move the Supreme Court to the right. Uh, Leo arranged for various shady organizations, some of which file uh, briefs with the Supreme Court. He's arranged for these organizations to pay almost $100,000 quietly, secretly to uh, Clarence Thomas's wife. And again, Thomas did not disclose that. So, you know, some people say, Greenhouse, you're an idiot to suggest that Clarence Thomas should resign. There's no way in the world he's going to resign. And in this piece I wrote for The Guardian, I admit that Thomas is probably too corrupt, too shameless to resign. So I, I argue that's all the more reason everyone you know, who cares about ethics and good government has to step up pressure, speak out and say, this guy's got to go. He's violated too many disclosure laws. He's violated too many ethical standards. He's violated too many conflict of interest rules. And, and I say we need editorial writers. We need columnists. We need law school deans. We need political science professors. We need good government groups. We need bar associations. We need clergy who care about, you know, who want public figures to have, you know, real moral stature and not, and, and, and not be you know, dishonest, disgraceful models that you know, clergy should be speaking up because Thomas, I submit, has become an embarrassment to the Supreme Court. He's probably done more than anyone else, you know, in modern history to, you know, to drag down the Supreme Court and, and, and make it not seem legitimate. Well, Stephen, I, I began by talking about the Chief Justice, John Roberts, because the Chief Justice could actually do something, and he doesn't seem to think there's a problem with uh, yeah, yeah. Thomas. And also, this is the same Chief Justice, by the way, who got rid of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and uh, wants to get rid of the whole Voting Rights Act because he thinks that racial discrimination and our ugly racist past, particularly in the South, uh, ancient history, when it's so obvious that anybody living in the real world knows that that's not true. That in many ways, Trump has brought back racism. So, I mean, it's bad. I mean, we know how terrible Clarence Thomas is, and he's an absolute disgrace. But the less corrupt ones, and then you have to ask yourself how tainted Roberts is, given his wife makes ten million dollars a year or something like that, or maybe over, I think it was over several years as a headhunter for big law firms that have business with the Supreme Court. So he's not without sin, I guess. But So that there, there are several kind of uh, sets of issues here, Ian. You know, one is, you know, the big one right now is Clarence Thomas, and has he done unethical, illegal things, and what should be done about that? Sec- a second set of issues is, okay, uh, should the Supreme Court finally, finally, finally adopt true, strong ethical rules, and, and then should the Chief Justice really be leading that effort? And I think John Roberts has disappointed many people in the extreme by basically saying everything uh, Thomas did is kosher, is okay. I really don't have any complaints about that. And in a speech yesterday, Roberts says that 
the Supreme Courts and its justices live up to the higher standards of conduct. conduct. And, and as I wrote in my Guardian story, I think Roberts comes across as weak. He doesn't want to stand up to Thomas. He doesn't want to stand up to Thomas, who's disgraced the court and pulled him into the mud. And he just see, and, and Roberts, you know, who is a brilliant guy, you know, I think we could all stipulate that, he just seems out of touch with the real world in many ways. You know, I think he thinks typical Americans think it's totally fine for, for Clarence Thomas to take, you know, these very luxurious, luxurious trips, you know, to Indonesia, you know, getting around all over the world, you know, sometimes going on this billionaire's yachts um, and while this billionaire is trying to influence the court. Uh, and Roberts acts as if, as if that's fine. And, 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 you know, I think many Americans are outraged uh, about this conduct by Thomas. And, and I wrote that I think Thomas, evidently, not Thomas, but Chief Justice Roberts evidently believes that Americans are, most Americans like are amoral morons who are in trouble at all by Thomas Thomas's awful behavior. And I think many, many Americans are deeply troubled. You know, I, I, I did an interview the other day with a friend who works in the labor department. I cover labor issues. And, and you know, as we were leaving and we were in Union Station, Washington, I offered to buy her a cup of coffee for $3. And she said, I'm a federal employee. I can't take a $3 cup of coffee. That, you know, that would violate my ethics. And then here we are, you know, have, have Thomas uh, taking, you know, gazillions of dollars in, in, in free trips. And, and Robert's wife, that's a whole other problem, you know, you know, one could debate whether it's unfair uh, for his wife to make, you know, millions of dollars in headhunter, headhunting fees, often working for prestigious, expensive corporate law firms. And does that mean that Robert somehow gives, Chief Justice Roberts sometimes, you know, prefers the arguments of these law firms, conceivably? I, I don't think that's nearly as outrageous as what happens with, with Thomas. Then there's the whole third set of issue, Ian, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, some people said early on that Clarence Thomas was not a legitimate justice. They believe that he purged himself many, many years ago when he denied Anita Hill's allegations. Some people, you know, question whether Brett Kavanaugh purged himself uh, during his confirmation hearing. Then when Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat by by denying uh, confirmation hearings and denying a vote for Merrick Garland. A lot of people say um, that a seat on the Supreme Court was stolen by the Republicans. Uh, people, you know, some people question the Supreme Court's legitimacy ever since the, the uh, Bush v. Gore decision in 2000, which some people say was a ju judicial coup where the conservatives on the Supreme Court basically decided that George W. Bush is going to win rather than Al Gore. And, um, and those, you know, those are real problems. And, you know, so I think one could say in Bush v. Gore, the justices ruled to help make sure that there'd be more conservatives appointed to the Supreme Court to help them keep their majority. And, and you know, then some of the Supreme Court justices basically lied to various senators in saying they thought that uh, Roe v. Wade was a super precedent that uh, they would probably uphold. And then once they got a majority in the court. They didn't hesitate to overturn it, which showed that maybe they weren't telling the truth when they told these senators that uh, they thought that Roe v. Wade was a, was a super president. So I think there are a lot of questionable things about some of the conservative justices. And as you said, Ian, you know, many of the conservative justices seem to be carrying the water very, very openly for the Republican Party. And they have issued decision after decision, ruling after ruling, that will increase the Republican Party's chances of winning and decrease the Democrats' chances of winning. And and I totally agree with you. The most outrageous decision, to my mind, is the one written by Chief Justice Roberts that overturned Section 5 of the uh, Voting Rights Act, in which, you know, that overturned the uh, power, the authority of the United States Department of Justice to pre-review when you know states like Mississippi and Alabama and Texas and South Carolina with a true racist history and 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 repeated efforts to reduce the voting power of African Americans and other people of color you know um, 
Section 5 of the Voting Rights gave the federal government, the Justice Department, the power to pre-review any changes in voting in voting rules uh, to help block any uh, anything that weakened, diluted the power of African-Americans and other workers, people of color. And Roberts, in this, to my mind, outrageous decision, basically said, there's no racism anymore in the United States. It's crazy for you to think that Republican lawmakers, any lawmakers in Mississippi or Louisiana or or Alabama or South Carolina or Texas or Florida would would be so naughty as to try to dilute the voting rights of blacks or, or gerrymander things to give black black voters fewer seats. And as soon as you know the Supreme Court overturned Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, you know a half dozen you know, Republican states move to, you know, roll back voting rights of blacks and, 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 and gerrymander things to high health. And, and, and Chief Justice Roberts led the way in, in giving a green light to the most egregious anti-democratic uh, gerrymandering. And another move that really helps Republicans, you know, the Citizens United, you know, John Roberts in his confirmation hearings, you know, feigned modesty. And he said, all, all I'm going to do is call balls and strikes, you know, and kind of make fine-tuned decisions. And then, you know, he led the way in this humongously important decision, Citizens United, which opened the floodgates to gazillions of dollars of money from the very, very rich, you know, to heavily influence our elections. And, and that has disproportionately, of course, helped Republicans because billionaires tend to favor Republicans. So I, I so I think that also, you know, not just you know corruption like, you know, Thomas and the stealing of Merrick Garland's seat, but I think the way the court has so heavily and repeatedly taken partisan decisions in favor of Republicans, it all raises questions about their legit their legitimacy. So just in closing, then it seems to me, Stephen, that the only answer is for the Democrats to gain gain control of the House and hold on to the White House by a sufficient majority that they can basically add what some people say they should they should increase the number of justices to 13 on the Supreme Court. These reactionaries on the Supreme Court living in their, their closeted, unreal world that they appear to be in, carrying the water for the plutocracy as well as the imposing moral authoritarianism on, on the country, there's no hope for them. So is that the answer, to basically stack the court? It, 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 so it's very hard to find an answer, Ian. So, so one way to do it is like for the Democrats to win control of the House and win control of the Senate, as they had you know, uh, before last November. But the Democrats were like, you know, didn't have the willpower to really push hard to increase the, you know, Biden was against it. Manchin was against it. Many, you know, some Democratic senators were chicken. And then you, you know, do you need 60 votes, or, or would the Democrats be willing to do this without, without, you know, would they be willing to get rid of the filibuster? And remember, there are real obstacles to the Democrats getting majority in both the House and the Senate. You know, Citizens United and and you know, conservative billionaires spending billions of dollars in elections makes it harder. You know, the the huge partisan gerrymanders. In states like Ohio, you know, house races in Ohio, house races in Florida, house races in North Carolina, that probably gives the Republicans 10, 12, 15 extra seats. And, and that's a further handicap, you know, making it harder for the Democrats to win a majority. Um, and, and then we have, you know, conservative media like Fox News that, you know, you know and I, I, I hesitate to call it a news organization. It's a propaganda organization for the Republicans and, and that kind of, you know, captures automatically 30 percent of, of voters. So you're really fighting, you know, you know you, who are like extremely conservative and, extremely, you know, very pro-Republican to think that Biden is totally evil. And then so you're really fighting over the other 70 percent of voters who aren't addicted to Breitbart and Fox News. So, you know, of that 70 percent, the Democrats need to win, you know, 51 percent of that 70 percent because the other 30 percent. Is already locked up, you know, in whatever you know Fox News is pointing them to. So it's very, very hard, and 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 you know I, I hesitate to use the word, but America is increasingly a plutocracy, where you know rich donors have a humongously disproportionate amount of power, 
in in who's elected and in, in what's passed and what's blocked. And and Joe Biden, bless his heart, you know, has managed to enact some very important legislation. Uh, despite all that, would we have liked him to do more to fix the Supreme Court? Yes. But um, that's a very bold move. And, and he was scared to do that. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us and uh, to add to uh, the um, <laughs> add to the pessimism here, uh, Stephen. Uh, today, the Supreme Court ruled against the Clean Water Act, uh, endangering wetlands, which, of course, is great news for real estate developers like Harlan Crow. I thank you for joining us. Uh, okay, always, always good to talk. Uh, be well, and thanks much. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation who was previously a reporter for the New York Times where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He served as a business and economics reporter and a a diplomatic and foreign correspondent and is the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Guardian, Clarence Thomas Should Resign from the Supreme Court for the Good of the Court. We can take a brief station break and back looking into a call for the U.S. to deal with the one-state reality of Israel following Monday's address by the Palestinian president to the U.N. General Assembly on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, or catastrophe, as the Palestinians call it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shibli Talhami, who is the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, the Director of the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has advised every U.S. administration from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama, serving as advisor to the U.S. mission to the United Nations, as well as on the Iraq study group, and as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State. He's the author of a number of books, including The Stakes, America in the Middle East and the World, and The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion and the Reshaping of the Middle East, and is the co-author of a new book just out, The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine, and is the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, Israel's One State Reality. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shibli Talhami. Good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Shibley. And uh, just before we get into your article in your new book, I noticed that your name was on the list of 500 Americans now banned from Russia. How did that happen? Do you know? Um, it's really puzzling, although, you know, I, I take it as a badge of honor, obviously. But it's um, especially given uh, the, the people who are included on that list. Um, obviously, Russia and Ukraine are not my principal area of research, but I have been doing a lot of public opinion polling on Ukraine that have gotten a lot of attention, meaning the extent to which the American public is or is not supportive of Ukraine. And I have been finding that uh, until really the last poll, which I did uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, consistent American public support for paying a price uh, for supporting Ukraine. So um, that those have gotten a lot of uh, publicity. Uh, I'm also on a uh, group at Brookings, which meets uh, regularly to discuss uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, and it looked to me like it, it, there's obviously no rhyme and reason because a lot of people who are on that list who seem to be just anti-Trump and they weren't even focused on Russia or Ukraine. Uh, but there were a lot of people from think tanks, particular think tanks. I'm, in addition to being a professor at the University of Maryland, also a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. And uh, a lot of my Brookings colleagues, particularly those who focus on Russia and Ukraine, uh, were on that list, uh, as were some other members of uh, other think tanks in Washington. Uh, so it's really hard to know how they figured it out. So I, I was puzzled, since it's not my principal area. Uh, but it's, uh, as I said, it's a badge of honor. 
So the polling, though, the more recent polling you're doing on U.S. support for Ukraine, I think it's key because I think what this whole list reveals is that, in effect, Putin's biggest play now is to break the American support for Ukraine and bring back Trump. It's so obvious from the people that were on that list, uh, you know, the special counsel, the Letitia James, who sued Trump, and Brad Raffensperger from uh, Georgia, and the FBI officials involved in investigating him, and particularly January the 6th, when Putin is clearly making a big deal out of January the 6th, and again, which is, of course, supporting Trump and the big lie. So that's my sense, uh, Shibley, is that this is where uh, Putin's number one priority is. He's not doing well yeah. on the battlefield, but he sure as hell wants to get Trump back in the White House, doesn't he? Yeah, no question. Uh, there's absolutely no question that that is a strategy. I mean, and if Trump were to get back to the White House, obviously uh, it w- the, the degree of support for Ukraine would be very different uh, based on what we you know, know the, the posture he has taken uh, since the um, a Russian invasion of Ukraine and and before during his administration his relationship with Russia, um, but you know it goes a little bit more than just about the preference for Trump or someone like Trump, um, uh, certainly not for Biden uh, to be reelected. Um, there is also so a little bit more of a play on public opinion, regardless of what happens in the election, because obviously American public support is one reason why the administration can keep up with. Uh, very high level of uh, backing of Ukraine, military certainly and economic, um, and um, you know we've we've found that just in the last poll there was a little bit of a drop. Still, a majority of Americans are prepared to pay a price for supporting Ukraine, but definitely it has dropped since the prior poll that we did by some ten percentage point, and they're counting on this public will declining and, and I've been arguing in my articles and the polling based you know the, that are based on the polling the findings that we have you know a lot of Americans uh, sort of um base their uh support or uh opposition uh on their psychological assessment of whether Ukraine is winning or Russia is losing they obviously are not going to spend a lot of money on a losing cause. And up until now, because the reports had been that Russia is not doing well, Ukraine is doing better, uh, they're, they're prepared to support more. This is not the only reason why they supported it. Obviously, they, they, you know, they saw the invasion as a huge violation of international law uh, and, and an assault on a democratic country. Uh, but the sustaining of that support is really a function of uh, whether they think Ukraine can pull it off, and uh, even with American support. And they had been, I think, pretty much in our polling, more people thought Ukraine is doing better than Russia. And um, that has started to change a little bit in the last couple of months um, when reports were a little bit less confident about Ukraine. And I suspect that if we see you know, a counteroffensive that might be reported as being successful, you're going to find a a new surge in America's public support for the war. So that's really an issue where uh, everybody's trying to play this psychological game of assessment because it influences the way the public takes a stand. So, Shibri Talhama, let's turn to your new book, The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? And uh, the article at Foreign Affairs, Israel's One State Reality. So when you say one-state reality, does that mean, in effect, that Israel won and the Palestinians lost? I mean, how how do you envision a one-state reality? Um, no, it has nothing to do with uh, winning and losing. And let me also, just to, to put this in some perspective, um, in the Foreign Affairs um, article, there are four of us. Um, uh, I have uh, three colleagues who are political scientists, uh, Mark Lynch, uh, Michael Barnett, and Nathan Brown, who co-authored with the four of us. We had edited this book uh, that we had worked on for practically four years, bringing in more than a dozen scholars, including Israelis and Palestinians, uh, mostly political scientists, trying to figure out 
how we identify what now exists in Israel, Palestine, and how do we assess where we go from here? And so that whole uh, assessment that it is already a one-state reality, it had not to do so much with winning and losing as much as it is identifying the reality that exists. And I say that because, you know, we have, you know, many of us, and I, I have been a supporter of two-state solution, and if it were to be offered again tomorrow, I would I would say jump on it, because it obviously is one way to get an equitable outcome. Uh, but in a way, um, it hasn't really been on the table since uh, practically 2000, when the negotiations collapsed, and the occupation has lasted most of a century. So the Palestinians have experienced nothing but occupation for most of their lives. And there is no one who can say how we can have a path to get out of what we have. And so uh, if you look at it, that's a lifetime. And to say this is a temporary occupation just doesn't capture it. And so we we sort of make an argument about what is a statehood uh, and what is sovereignty. And we, we argue that statehood is about control and entrenchment of that control, institutionalization of that control, versus sovereignty, which is a recognition by the outside world of the legality of that control. So Israel has not had sovereignty over these territories, but in effective terms, it has been controlling them as if it were one state. And we identify the reasons why it should be called one state reality, meaning that in fact, Israel really pretty much controls those territories uh, some of this uh, control is subcontracted, so to speak, because the Palestinian Authority has become a little bit, little more than just being a subcontractor for Israeli security, as well as providing uh, some benefits to its uh, to the Palestinians. Uh, but if you look at it that way, then your assessment changes because up until now, most people look at it as there is Israel, which is in its pre nineteen sixty seven border. And there is the West Bank and Gaza that are occupied territories that are temporarily occupied. And then that's on, a, on its way to a resolution. So when you look at it and you make an evaluation, you look at pre-1967 Israel and you say, you say it's a, a flawed democracy. It's a democracy uh, uh, flawed because obviously Arab citizens have most of the rights that Jews have, but not all of the rights. It has structural discrimination, but it's not really any worse than many other countries around the world. So certainly you wouldn't turn, call it a an apartheid state if you're looking at pre-1967 Israel. Uh, and then if you look at it in addition to that and say, well, yeah, the Palestinian situation is bad, but it's a temporary occupation. It's about to come an end, to, to an end, and we're hoping it will. Uh, so you have a completely different perspective. But once you look at it as a permanent situation, and, and we think most of a century and a lifetime of people is a permanent situation, then what you see is something far less equitable. What you see is a a, a, a system of, of structured discrimination uh, that is tiered, uh, uh, where on, on the one hand, you have some non-Jews who have most of the rights that Jews have. On the other hand, most non-Jews um, have segregation, separation, and, and domination. And so, uh, therefore, when we look at it through the prism of one state, when we put a new pair of glasses and look at the entire territory as a single state controlled by Israel, then uh, we reach the conclusion that uh, if if it's not apartheid, it rhymes. It's it's pretty close. And And therefore, if you start with that recognition, uh, then um, your perspective shifts and changes in terms of uh, what uh, should be done about it, particularly from our own government, the United States government, all four of us are American. And we look at it through that prism because we also argue in both the book and the article that the United States has, in fact, enabled this uh, unjust one-state reality over a long period of time and continues to do so now. And therefore, it has a particular responsibility to stop being an enabler and complicit in an unjust reality. And uh, we have some thoughts related to that uh, take. Well, you mentioned uh, it's almost 100 years. Well, of course, on Monday, there was the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, the catastrophe, as the Palestinians call it. And the leader of the Palestinians addressed the United Nations 
a video was played uh, made by the recently murdered Palestinian journalist. And, you know, the, the reality is, Shibley, is that Israel has politically, it started out in many ways as a kind of a left-wing socialist state, and it's becoming more and more right-wing over the decades. And you even have a struggle going on with Israel within Israel itself, where the more secular people from Tel Aviv are demonstrating against the sort of religious right-wing nationalists take over the country, represented by this new government of Netanyahu's. But when you get religious nationalism into the picture, and you also have it, of course, on the Palestinian side with Hamas, it makes it incredibly hard, does it not, to come up with any solutions. Once, once... Yeah, no question. No question. Um, um, and first, I also want to clarify. So we, in in this, uh, in the article in the book, we don't really litigate the history. So we, we're, we just start with where we are now. So we don't really, you know, go into why did we get here? What happened 48? What happened 67? And we're just looking at the territory as it's recognized legally by, and we don't challenge the international position. Israel is recognized by the international uh, in its pre-1967 by the international community um, uh, the, uh, uh, and uh, the uh, West Bank and Gaza are technically occupied territories according to those rules. So we, we don't really challenge any of that. This is not really our interest in in terms of uh, in that in this particular project to litigate and look back. It's really about recognizing what exists now and moving forward. But you're absolutely right about um, the changes, the shifts that have happened uh, among Palestinians and Israelis. Um, I have written an article, as, as I said, I've been um, one of the very strong supporters of two state when it was on the table in the 1990s. I even, uh, you know, was in a, on a committee, um, uh, for the Clinton administration, uh, trying to advance that. Um, and um, when it looked like it was going to collapse, uh, even before uh, 2000, when the Camp David uh, negotiations collapsed that were uh, uh, mediated by Bill Clinton, um, I wrote a piece in which I said, the danger is that if these negotiations collapse, it's the whole paradigm of nationalism that collapses, because the whole idea of two states was predicated on the assumption that there is a Jewish nationalism and there's a Palestinian nationalism, and um, you can sort of meet the aspirations of both people through a compromise that's territorial, and that way you can have some equity, um, you know, um, uh, in, in historical perspective and, and a way of accommodation. Uh, so nationalism was was really central. In fact, in, in Oslo, what made the Oslo agreements in 1993 uh, important wasn't really the details of the agreements. The agreements themselves were pretty terrible, actually, when you look at them. Uh, but there was the mutual recognition where Rabin essentially says, I recognize the PLO as representative of Palestinians and 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 uh, Arafat recognizing recognizes the state of Israel. That was the key here. It was about the mutual recognition of two, uh, you know, national as, uh, movements uh, that could meet meet uh, uh, ultimately uh, a conclusion in in the two states. Now, I worried from that beginning that the collapse of that project of nationalism was going to lead to a religious nationalism with a zero sum game, and I wrote about it already in the late 1990s, um, how I worried that this is what going to have. And what we've seen in Israel um, is no question a rise of religious nationalism. Uh, in fact, in the book that we have, The One State Reality, we have a, a brilliant article by an Israeli sociolo Israeli-American sociology teacher at UC San Diego, um, uh, Gershon Shafir, um, about um, how religious... Uh, Zionism in Israel moved from you know Jewish privilege to Jewish supremacy and and he, he maps it out um, and we see in public opinion polls a lot of people say this is about the rise of Otsma Yehudit, uh, Bingvir and uh, Smotrich and and so forth. Sure, uh, these are important figures that that have that brought home what has transpired. But public opinion polls uh, have been showing the rise of the right in Israel. Uh, for example, the 2015 Pew poll, it was a major poll in Israel with thousands of Israelis face-to-face -face interviews, uh, showed that 79% um, of Israelis believe that uh, Jews should have 
privileges over non-Jews in Israel, that is citizens of Israel, this is even regardless of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and 48% supported the idea that uh, Arabs should be expelled from Israel. So you have this significant shift that had taken place in public opinion, uh, and where the younger people are more religious and more to the right um, uh, than than you would typically expect in generational shifts. So so uh, the move is toward uh, uh, farther right uh, and more uh, more religious. And so yes, I think that is that is an issue uh, that haunts Israel. And you you're right in terms of um, uh, you know highlighting how a lot of liberal Jews in Israel have been so activated by the threat to them, uh, even regardless of the West Bank and Gaza, just to uh, within Israel itself through the uh, proposed uh, judicial overhaul, uh, but also uh, the type of people uh, who now dominate in government. And uh, they're activated, they're energized. The fact that you have hundreds of thousands of people go out uh, for week after week after week, uh, trying to change that is important. Uh, but we should not lose sight of the fact that it's not primarily about the control of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And we should also not lose the, fa the fact that their activism and their energy uh, still doesn't mean that their numbers are large enough to change the path that Israel is on right now. So just in the last minute then, Shibley, can you give us a quick vision of what could happen here since we've more or less laid out the problems? I I, I would say I'm, I'm not optimistic. None of us are optimistic about the short term because I think the, the, the reality on the ground is ugly. Uh, it's hard to see what would happen. So we limit our recommendations to uh, our own government um, because we are enabling the one state reality. I'll give you one example. Why in the world would the Biden administration, which presumably is so busy with so many other issues, uh, and which is one reason why it's not doing much on Israel-Palestine trying to resolve it, uh, why would it go and uh, use time and energy and diplomatic effort to block the United Nations and international organizations uh, from uh, stopping settlements uh, that uh, the administration itself believes are wrong uh, and they are under international uh, against international law. Why would they work so hard to block the international community, uh, uh, which has a consensus uh, to oppose the settlements, to essentially shield the settlements from any repercussions and then play into the hands of Ben Gvir and the right-wingers in Israel. Why would we do that? And so this is the question that we ask of our government. Why are we an enabler of what we know is an unjust reality? Why do we pretend like we have shared values when you have what has emerged to be an apartheid-like situation? Uh, and so we need to change the discourse. Uh, we need to even if we have limits about what we can do, and Israelis and Palestinians are going to have to find a path uh, forward that uh, toward dignity and equality for both. Uh, we don't know what that's going to be or where it's going to be, but it certainly isn't on the horizon. And we shouldn't employ the promise of two-state solution, which is not on the horizon and has not been for decades, uh, just as a smokescreen to cover up the ugly reality that we all must find a way to contend with uh, certainly morally. Sure. And of course, the peace process has always been about process and not peace. So I couldn't agree with you more. And I thank you very much for joining us here today, Shibli Talhami. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Shibli Talhami, who's the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland and the Director of the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has advised every U.S. administration from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama, serving as advisor to the U.S. mission to the United Nations as well as on the Iraq Study Group and as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Stakes, America in the Middle East, and The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion, and the Reshaping of the Middle East. And is the co-author of a new book just out, The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? And is the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, Israel's One State Reality. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now.